Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Oneet Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you are around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one. No questions asked. That is why I am offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on HighTruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. This High Truths podcast is sponsored by NMI, the National Marijuana Initiative. NMI strives to dispel misconceptions about marijuana and raise awareness of the issues surrounding the drug so that citizens and policymakers can make well-informed choices regarding marijuana use and regulations. Learn more about NMI at thenmi.org. Hello again, everyone. Thank you for joining me and taking time to listen to High Truths. There are other things that you could be doing right now, and I so appreciate you listening in. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. Today, I want to start the show by sharing three health tips related to cannabis. I have many more tips, but today you're just going to get three. So if you want to hear the other tips, you'll have to uh, give a five-star review and ask for the other ones. Now, If you already know everything there is to know about marijuana or insist on using the word cannabis because anyone who uses the word marijuana is a prohibitionist, this show is not for you. If you already know about cannabis sativa versus indica and you made up your mind that people need marijuana, that it helps with pain and sleep and is safer than alcohol, and if you think anyone who says anything bad about marijuana is just full of reefer madness, these tips are not for you. Don't waste your time. Turn off the podcast now. However, if you want to learn some health tips so you can make your own decisions for protecting your health and those you love, then listen on. And I expect that after learning these three tips, you will take just one fact and share it at a dinner conversation with family or friends, and you will be an informed decision maker and you'll share that knowledge. And with your permission, I will start. Health tip number one. The brain grows until you're 25 or 27 years old. At age 18, you can vote. At 21, you can legally drink, but that's a legal age. The medical age for brain development is 25. For my kids, it's 27 because I want to protect them longer. But the brain grows from the back of the brain, the cerebellum, the balanced part of the brain, to the front, the frontal cortex, the executive decision-making part of the brain. It's also growing from the inside, the gray matter, to the outside, the white matter. Myelin is the white matter of the brain. It's an insulator of neurons and helps information flow faster. Myelin continues to grow until age 25, 27. The brain is also pruning neurons. 
cutting out neurons that are not used and building stronger pathways to the neurons that are used more often. We know if kids and adults are exposed to addictive drugs while their brain is growing, the odds of addiction is up seven times higher than for, for kids than for adults. We learned that from the tobacco industry who knowingly marketed to teenagers who would become lifetime cigarette consumers when primed at a young age. The same addiction potential applies to alcohol, marijuana, opioids, and other addictive drugs. So health tip number one is protect the growing brain to minimize the chance of addiction to marijuana, but really any chemical. Health tip number two is avoid cannabis-induced psychosis and possibly permanent schizophrenia. This is not, there's not a dispute that cannabis or marijuana can cause psychosis. This is especially true with high potency products, but with continued use, one bad trip can become a lifelong mental illness. Dr. DeForte, who has been on the show, studied 900 patients with first-time psychosis and compared them to 1,237 controls. She found a five-fold increase rate of psychosis in people who used high-potency marijuana on a daily basis. High-potency, she defined as 10%. She also concluded that these cases could have been prevented if individuals did not use marijuana. You may not develop psychosis or schizophrenia from using pot, but marijuana carries a five-fold increased risk of permanent psychosis. Maybe your child may not get it, but maybe not John or Bill or Talia or David, but maybe it will be Linda. That's what a five-fold increase means. Health tip number two, beware of psychosis with high-potency pot. Health tip number three is beware of THC and CBD drug interactions. I had a patient with internal breathing that required blood transfusions. By way of, by the way, COVID created a terrible shortage of blood uh, to the point that we canceled elective surgeries at some time. Um, but my patient was able to get blood and yet he kept coming back to the hospital, still bleeding. On his third visit, we figured out his chronic marijuana smoking was interfering with his blood thinner medications for his heart stents. There are over 300 medications that interact with THC and over 500 medications that interact with CBD. Go to drugs.com and use their drug interaction checker to check your medications with cannabis or cannabidiol. Health tip number three is if you use cannabis products such as THC or CBD and take prescription medications, you should use a drug interaction checker to avoid complications. You have three health tips, the growing brain, psychosis, and drug interactions. Share one of those with your friends. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Rob Hall, North City Prevention Coalition. We help communities in the northern half of San Diego reduce problems caused by substance misuse. High Truths on Drugs and Addiction is a useful series for people who want to learn about the science behind dependence and treatment. How have different marijuana products evolved over time and how have the medical effects of those products changed? Thank you, Robert, for your dedicated prevention work and important question. I have a knowledgeable and entertaining expert that is perfect for your questions, Ben Court. Ben has been sober since June 15, 1996 and is now a prevention and recovery leader, TED Talk speaker and author. 
He consults for hospitals, nonprofits, treatment programs, state governments, professionals, and collegiate athletes. He's now CEO of Foundry Steamboat Springs, an inpatient treatment program in Colorado. Check out his book, Weeds Incorporated. You can find Ben Court's bio on the High Truth show notes. Ben Court, welcome to High Truths. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Dr. Love. It's great to see you. And Ben, it's great to see you too. The last time we met was at a little Baptist church in New Jersey, and we testified about marijuana effects, and you drove me to the airport. Yeah, I think we were there. It was the New Jersey Black Caucus, um, and Senator Rice invited us to come out and speak. That was that was a really cool event. It was a cool event. It was great to get to know you. And then I almost got to see you again in Miami. But then uh, tell tell High Truths what happened to you. Uh, COVID part two. So I'm pretty sure I was like Colorado patient zero the first time I caught it because it was um, I had it in March of 2020 or 2021, whenever we all got sick. And then I had the latest variant and even fully vaccinated got so sick. So yeah, you guys were all downstairs having lots of fun and learning great things. And I was sleeping 20 hours a day upstairs in the hotel room. (laughs) It was terrible. Can you imagine flying, you know, across the country and now being quarantined in a hotel room by yourself? It was horrible. I felt so bad for you. Um, The worst part was it was like... Miami in January. I mean, it was beautiful. And I'm looking out the window and it's so gorgeous. And I never once went outside the entire time I was there. That's terrible. We were like, you know, bringing food to your door and then running away. (laughs) Terrible. (laughs) But I'm glad you recovered and you're well. You know, I'm always worried about that. Um, You know, it's like, hey, Ben, what's your O2 sat today? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, you did well. Thank God. I appreciated that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Robert has a question that I thought you'd be good to answer. And that's how have products, marijuana products, cannabis products evolved over time? Like, so a lot of, we talked to a lot of parents, right? And they compare their Woodstock weed to what kids today are exposed to. Can you give us, uh, you know, what's out there and how is it different um, from a 20, 30 years ago to, to what people are selling today? So it's not even the same thing. Um, so I, I actually, um, I, I'm working on a second book. Dr. Bader's working on it with me, who you met um, in Miami, I believe. Oh, how cool is and that? And the, the, right? We've been friends forever. It's so fun to do this with her. And she's so smart. She makes it easy. Um, what, what I start the next book with is, kind of a um, a breakdown of the words that we use and why we have such a, a need for expanded vernacular here, because we can't say weed and expect that it can truthfully apply to what people were consuming even 10 years ago. So certainly 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago and what's being consumed today. Um, they're, they're, they're just totally different. I mean, for example, from your perspective, the, these concentrates that we have um, are acting as um, vasoconstrictors as opposed to cannabis, which has always been a vasodilator. Um, I, I mean, you, you've got all new things happening with what people are consuming today because it's not weed it's concentrated thc and to 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 call it weed i think to answer robert's question um is even misleading so it's changed so dramatically 
that is not even the same thing, man. It, it is um, affecting the brain and body in very, very different ways than the cannabis that was consumed in the past was. That's why I think it's so important to refer to what's happening. What, what we're consuming today is THC and THC based products, not even saying marijuana. You bring a really good point in um, that how things affect the body is different, right? Um, and you're right. Uh, people think of marijuana as weed being mellow, and I don't see mellow. I see psychotic and agitation, right? I used to see nobody in the emergency department, and now I'm seeing multiple patients a day. So something is different, and it's the high-potency THC that makes it very different. Can you give us a description of the actual products and, and start with the Woodstock, you know, weed that comes in a plant and you're rolling a joint. Um, that's what people think of of marijuana. And take take us through to from that to what what we're seeing today, what people are buying today. So um, cannabis sativa, which has grown naturally in warm and humid places all over the world since the dawn of time. I mean, hum humankind has always interacted with it. It's one of 50 essential herbs inside of traditional Chinese medicine. Like it's always been a part of the human experience in places where it grew naturally, warm places, humid places. Um, uh, uh, about a generation ago, we made this hybrid called um, cannabis indica, which was basically created to, to survive colder weather. I mean, it's a little bit of an oversimplification, but you, you could grow it more generously in different places. And that got a little bit stronger. But what we had for, I mean, from, from the dawn of human time up until the late 60s was a plant that grew naturally um, from the time you planted it until it was ready to harvest was about 120 days or so. You pulled it out of the ground, dried it out. And um, for, for a very long time, people used it topically more than anything else. Um, but there's always been a small contingent who dried those leaves and or buds out and smoked them. Um, it wasn't until the late 60s that we started to see an increase in that THC potency going from less than half of a percent. So, so there wasn't weed out there that had more than half of a percent. I mean, maybe it was out there, but it was really, really limited. Um, and, and we started to slowly see that climb through the uh, mid 2000s, where, where by the time we got to um, when I moved into this field, I'd already been sober for a number of years. But about 2015, you had cannabis that was 12 percent THC potency. So this is genetically modified plant, right? These, these plants were genetically modified for their THC content. Well, so in, in the true form of that word, absolutely, because it's but 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 it really was just good botany. Um, so it's it, it would be the same thing as like somebody growing a bigger and bigger tomato, but without additives. They, they are all genetically modified today. Before it was just good selective breeding and, and cloning, basically, so that we had a non pollinating female. Interesting. OK. And, and then over the last um, decade, <laughs> over the last decade, we have gone from that 10, 12% THC to 
20%, 30%, 40%. And now our products uh, come in clear rock form and are still being advertised as marijuana, um, but they're pure THC, 99.9% pure um, THC in a rock form is what we're consuming today, which is a very, very long way from the flowering plant. Right. And and tell us what all people I don't even know. What's a shatter and a dabs and these candies and these foods? What, what's all that? new whole new part in the industry so i i'll describe it a little bit but i think for your viewers the very best thing they can do is google some of this stuff um and to throw it into youtube too because you can see everybody consuming this because kids put everything on youtube um so it's basically a, a a form of concentrate so all these things are a form of concentrate and concentrate is exactly what it sounds like they use a stripping agent um there there are other things in stripping agents there's some that are gravity pressure reverse osmosis cold water but for the most part it's butane or propane that, that they use to strip the thc out of the plant so you get the whole plant with 200 and some chemicals inside of it when you push the butane through it the butane bonds to the thc and what you get at the bottom of that uh, what comes out is butane and thc so you then purge the butane because um you're a medical professional so you're probably aware of this but for your listeners you shouldn't smoke butane um what we end up doing then is doing that process again and again and again until we reach the level of purity that we're looking for and we have a concentrated thc so it is a it's a byproduct of the cannabis plant. Um, I think the very best way for your listeners to think about it um, is concentrates are to cannabis what crack is to coca. Interesting. All right. And then is that what's in all the food? What's in the food products? Is it the flour or is it these concentrates? What's in it? For example, the most common thing I see in the emergency department is gummies. What's in those gummies? I would assume that the most common thing you're seeing in the ER, if it's like Colorado, is people who are there for overconsumption of edibles. Is that most of it? I I'll see somebody with just one gummy and they're there with excited delirium because all the THC was in that one gummy. Um, I had a guy who came in with a stroke after one gummy. I had a guy who had, you know, just a weird feel. People come in like, and they're older people who are with there with the gummy problems. Um, cause they just, you know, they just thought, oh, it'll help my sleep or it's just, you know, want to use out the little, but they're on their blood pressure medicines and now that creates a reaction. Or I had a guy the other day, he was seeing things and so what, why would a 70 year old all of a sudden have visual hallucinations? That doesn't make sense. You know, so we're doing this whole CAT scans and biological workup and it, you know, it's the gummy. So, where we really screwed up. I mean, we could fill a book with where we really screwed <laughs> up. But one of the areas that we really screwed up on this was in um, the, the the way that we allowed the measurements for potency to be done inside of these edibles. So what they did was they just went with a straight weight. Um, so it's 10 milligrams uh, of weed is is a legal serving um what that was basically assuming was that this was the weed of 10 years ago 15 years ago when these laws were written even though so many of us were yelling and saying this isn't what it's going to be it, it was 
it was organic material. You know, think of it as baking 10 milligrams of weed into a batch of brownies. So that's what it, it was set up to do. But now everything's being infused with concentrates, um, very specifically distillates. So um, can't, THC does a notoriously bad job of, of bonding to gelatin. Concentrates, on the other hand, do a fantastic job bonding to gelatin. So what you're seeing now are, are distillates, which are the, the purest form of concentrates. That's what's making up edibles. So where you had 10 milligrams was, was supposed to be a flower at five or 6% THC is now um, being filled up with, with a 99.9% .9 pure distillate. And the other issue that we've got is the, the un unregulated way that these things are packaged. So you'll have multiple servings inside of one package. Um, the record I've seen is a hundred legal servings. So a thousand milligrams and things. Um, and the most audacious of any of those, uh, I'll have to send you pictures. Maybe you can put it up on this are thousand milligram cake pops. So it's a cake pop with a hundred legal servings of concentrate in it easy to see why people can get into trouble. And so is it fair to say that most of these edible part um, products are concentrates? It's not the old little marijuana uh, flour baked in the brownie? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, if I had to guess, I'd guess 95%, uh, maybe higher than that. We, we also can say with a surety that anything that's being vaped is a form of concentrate. Um, and, and that's going to be above 99%. Wow. That's, um, I don't think that most people know that about the industry at all. Um, I don't think, I think you, I think when they think about edibles, they're think people are thinking about, you know, brownie with some, you know, plant inside. Ha ha ha. I think they did that on purpose. I think they very, very deliberately and specifically allowed that sort of loose, um, understanding uh, to be defined very differently so that they could create anything that they want. And, and, and again, the, these more intense products that permeate the market that absolutely are the norm will put the average person under your care in, in a yep. state of psychosis and real yep. trouble. Who they are made for are the frequent chronic problemed user, the person with a tolerance so high, they need that to feel anything. So there are a lot of candies out there, right? Um, I had pediatrician really complain about the Weedos because they look like Cheetos. And so little babies will want to take them and the various different candies. Um, and that's all concentrates, like you said, all distilled product, THC. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't, I don't know why, why we need that in society for little kids to, to get high concentrated THC. Um, what's the weirdest thing you've seen? Suppositories, um, both vaginal, both vaginal and, you know, I, I don't know, you, you probably remember cause you were in the ERs then. And I'd imagine in Southern California, saw a bit of it, the, um, alcohol soaked tampons that were the rage for a while. Yeah. Um, very effective form of absorption, obviously. So we have these same things in, um, they call them tampons, but they're just vaginal suppositories. And then the anal suppositories are, are frequent as far as um, 
facsimiles of other things. Yeah, I'm very familiar with the Weedos, but um, Pot Rocks, which is uh, a takeoff on Pop Rocks. So it's a popping THC candy. Um, very clearly the sort of thing that is targeting young people. Um, but they've been targeting young people from the very beginning in the same way that tobacco providers and alcohol and opiate manufacturers, because that's where the addiction is. Right. That creates a customer for life. That's that's a known uh, good sell. What are, and what's the scariest thing out there that, that you've come across? So it, it would either be the THC infused water or um, uh, sodas because it's so easy to overconsume those and so easy to hide them. But, but really what we've seen, and again, I'll send you some pictures, maybe you can put them up. What we've seen just inside of the last year, maybe 15 months are uh, a clear, tasteless, smellless, water soluble droplet. So it, it comes in a little container. Think of like, um, Oh, I don't know, like an eardrop or something. It comes in a little container. You squeeze the thing, lift it up and you got a couple drops. And so then you can put those drops on anything and turn them into an edible. Uh, I mean, it can be like an actual can of Coke that you take and put one in. You can drop a couple on your broccoli at dinner. Um, it, it, it makes it so that anything on earth um, can be an edible. It's made things inside of my world, inside of the inpatient treatment world, pretty tricky. Um, let's switch and talk a little bit about addiction. You are a man in recovery, um, and uh, you have transformed your life to a life of, of giving and service and helping um, not just your patients, but really um, your entire community. And tell us uh, a little bit about your journey. Well, it, it happened pretty early for me. Uh, I ended up getting sober when I was 18, uh, so June 15th of 1996. And um, it was an incredible gift because I had an opportunity to really reinvent and, and redirect everything. You know, I, I work in that field now and have spent and spent so much of my time in and around that world that it's always exciting um, to see anybody get it. I, I mean, I've been a, a, a part of helping a, a woman in her early 90s who wow. wanted to get sober before she passed away. And that, that was beautiful, but there, there was something, something really, um, really freeing about having it happen that early. There were so many things that I, I certainly experienced too much of at a young age. Um, but, but then again, at the same time, I, I got to, I had just opportunity after opportunity because that was not a part of my life. Um, as I grew. And it's something that I'm certainly really proud of and, and love almost nothing more. Uh, maybe there's a couple of things I love a little more, but love almost nothing more than seeing that same light bulb go on for other people, because it's one of the things that people seem to miss about the recovery side of, of the world is they think that what we do is, is we give up something. And while that's certainly the case, you do, um, you, you fill your life up uh, with so many other things. And I've gotten to have about 25 years of, of very rich and full life as a result of it. 
Yes, very much so. And uh, and I, I notice that for people who've gone through complete recovery and living their life like that, they're just nicer human beings, right? <laughs> Sometimes we meet people who, um, like, you know what, maybe I don't, you don't have an addiction, but maybe you should try some uh, recovery uh, tips. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure that almost everybody on the planet could benefit from working some version of the steps. They're, they're really good stuff. And I, I, I've got a dear friend who likes to say whenever things get rough or um, he's been sober for a long time. He says, just just remember, we're all playing on house money here. So what can really be so bad? Yeah, yeah all right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. When I've, I've seen you speak. You're an amazing uh, speaker. And one of the things that you do is you, you talk to, I've seen you talk to law enforcement and you're like, Hey, I'm sorry, man. I was like one of these people who were just yelling and cursing at you, right? And and I resonate to that because you say, you know, as, as doctors, like, you know, there I was in the hospital yelling and cursing at the doctor. Those are the patients I see. You were that person. <laughs> and that's it's it's nice because it's like okay i've seen those patients actually and you know underneath that is is a beautiful human being we could you know and it's the the drug behavior that we're seeing um so did you reach a low point that said okay that's it i gotta do something and and do you see that in your in your clients do you do you have to reach a low point before you decide okay i gotta gotta make some changes in my life Great question. Um, so for me, there wasn't like an event. There, there was um, a, a, a way of life that was the low point, a hopeless, um, gray, violent, terrible way of life that um, just kept going and kept going um, until I think I, I finally was able to step back from it over the course of about a week when some interesting things happened and see how dark it was. Um, so there wasn't ever one big giant thing that happened for me. There's certainly for a lot of people, there, there are those moments, you know, there's the DUI, there's the arrest, there's the death of a loved one, the witnessing of an overdose. Um, there certainly are those things, but the idea that, that I think you're alluding to a little bit is this thing that we've had uh, inside of my space for so long, which is said a person has to hit rock bottom. And um, you, you don't meet a lot of people who've been around this for a long time who agree with that. Because for a lot of people, um, rock bottom is dead. And so what we we don't want to do, it's just like treating any other chronic disease. I mean, the earlier the intervention, the better. We don't have to let cancer get to stage four before we take a look at it. So we, we don't we're not always waiting for the person to have this actualization. Um, what we're trying to do is, is help them see uh, that that there is a need. So anybody's rock bottom can be anything. Uh, it, it certainly doesn't have to be some massive event culminating in prison or anything. We hope it isn't. Yeah, that's a great analogy with chronic disease. The earlier, the better when people are ready. Um, but addiction is a disease of denial. And I find that especially with marijuana. So how, how, what are your tricks of, of reaching people who are in denial? How do you reach someone like that? Oh, man, that's the million dollar question. Um, 
you got to go really slow. That's the the first piece of advice that I would offer to to most people. So especially if it's somebody younger, or maybe not even younger, just anybody who's been um, involved, certainly in the in the movement, if you will, on the other side of this, they expect um, arguments, and they have been really well prepped on how to push back on those arguments. Uh, whether or not they know it, they have been conditioned to push back on those arguments. So you, you can't typically go hard at people who, who haven't had that self-actualization. What I try and do is create a safe enough space for them to feel like they can ask a couple of really simple questions. Um, first question, is your life better because of your use? Today, we're not going back to ninth grade or 10th grade or the concerts. Is your life better, richer because of your use? That's one. And then the second thing that I try and give them time to ponder is, is could you stop? What would happen if you stopped? So those two things, a lot of the time, will lead people to um, to consider, and, and maybe it takes them a couple of days, maybe it takes a couple of weeks. I'm working with a kid in California who it's taken two years almost to get to this point, where where they say, "Huh, I actually, I don't know if this is making my life better," and I can think of several instances where it's making it harder, and then actually, I'm really scared to quit. And then the, the next step from that is, well, if we're scared to quit something, maybe we're dependent on that thing. And if we're dependent, we should maybe look at that relationship. What I get, so I, I see patients in the emergency department, right? And they have cannabis hyperemesis. This is like their, you know, fifth time in the emergency department. And um, they kind of know what's wrong. But uh, a lot of times they say, well, I don't know. Nobody could figure it out. And the reason is they don't want to admit, you know, right? you've already had a bunch of CAT scans and unhealthy things. What I tell people is that first, let people know that you've had the CAT scan so you don't give yourself more radiation that can give you cancer later. So, like, you know, don't hide that. <laughs> um, but I'm going to try your technique is, is your life better and can you quit? Um, the pushback I usually get is like, well, I, I need it because it helps me sleep. It helps me feel nauseated. I, I'm a, oh, yesterday I had a guy who was going to jail because very he was very aggressive. That was his words. Um, but I don't know. It was caught by police. He was going to jail for something. <clears throat> and he says, I need it to kept, keep me calm. And yet here he was <laughs> with aggression. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I, I mean, especially you, you get it even more with it being medicine um, where people will, you know, just put the word medical before to treat anything that they want. So I try to, I, you know, I'll deal with every single one of those individually. And I think maybe the best advice that I can give folks is to not um, to, to, to not brush them all off blanket. Because while scientifically, we can certainly refute the things that, that these folks are saying, mm -hmm. um, they, however, have found something that, that works at some level. Uh, we know that we, we, we know for sure that consuming will help you fall asleep. Mm 
We also know for sure that it will give you much worse sleep, keep you from entering REM sleep, have you be much less rested. We know that it might make an individual feel less aggressive, but in reality, um, it, it typically, these higher concentrates actually are causing aggression. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the times what I find is folks who found something that works for, for a mental health disorder that they have. And, and it doesn't work to actually treat the mental health disorder, but it, it's probably covering up symptoms. So I go into those conversations very gently with them because um, th th think about it this way. The, the person who you give a 95 proof liquor to for a toothache, you know, the snake oil of the 1800s is not going to feel their toothache for an hour or two, but it's not going to do anything to treat the decay. So what I like to do is to, to tell them, I, I understand that, that it feels better when you consume that, but what if, what if you're actually making these underlying problems worse, like what the science would tell us? For the person who has trouble sleeping, <clears throat> that's really easy. In fact, um, I work inside a lot of professional and collegiate athletic circles, and this comes up a lot. And so what I do with them is have conversations around sleep hygiene. And I create a sleep plan with them about just good habits um, to get to sleep. For the person with anxiety, um, I tell them and I recognize, say, hey, your anxiety is going to be worse while you detox 10, 12 days, maybe longer than that. You should be under the care of a professional. But then after that, I can pretty much guarantee you, you're going to see a decrease in your anxiety. So you got to take them all individually. And, and the big thing I would encourage folks not to do to the chronic consumer is just to brush them all off and say you're wrong. Because even if they are scientifically wrong, their experience will tell them different. That's a very good tip also is acknowledge that. And we know that from cigarettes, right? Cigarettes actually help calm anxiety for a little bit, or they help the negative schizophrenic effects. That's true. Um, but it's still not helping. It doesn't treat your schizophrenia and it, it's bad for your lungs. Um, you talk to, you work with a lot of collegiate groups. How, uh, how big of an issue is this in, in athletes? Um, so inside of professional and collegiate athletics, it's the, um, most commonly abused substance. Um, alcohol aside, of course, uh, but more than opiates, um, more than anything else inside of those worlds. Um, and it, it's, uh, it, it's interesting because it's such a performance um, decreaser. It, it hurts one's performance rather than helps one's performance, where the perception of that is very different. Um, typically, people see it as a performance increaser enhancer. So I have to get into the specifics with those athletes. So what is, is there a movement now to like try to say that it's, it's okay for athletes to use THC and, and remove that from the drug screening? Um, I mean, it seems like that anytime that you're playing professional sports, you're subject to drug testing and there's doping rules. Um, and uh, we've seen that you know, recently in Olympics and NBA and other sports, it, I think there's a movement to get away with that. What do you, what do you think about that? Or is that true? 
Oh, oh yeah, there's a significant movement, a very, very, very well-funded movement. Um, there's, there, it's, it's complex, it's nuanced, like anything in, inside of this subject. There's a lot of nonsense that's happened over the years, um, particularly to players of ethnic uh, minorities uh, for their consumption. However, at the same time, there have been a, a lot of people whose lives have been destroyed by their addiction who haven't stepped in to help. So it, it, there's no simple solution to this. We have to look at the athletics, both collegiate and professional. The movement that you allude to is not organic. It is um, very, very deliberately and well-funded by the people who are profiting on the sales of it. Because, you know, professional sports um, figures sell products. It's, it's why you got Tom Brady selling sub way and things so the more of those folks you can get selling their product the better you're going to end up doing right and yet you can can you show individuals that their you know their times and their performance are worse while on thc than off of it oh oh yeah I mean, we have empirical data for that. Again, the probably the country's thought leader on it would be Dr. Bader, uh, who you were with in Miami. Um, but she's been on the show. Empirical data. Uh, oh, good. Okay, cool. Um, I, I mean, it's the sort of thing that. So sometimes data is a little here and a little there, and it's like, how do we interpret it? Um, th this this isn't one that's really open for interpretation. And, and, and some things in this world, there's the ergolytic or ergogenic uh, d discrepancy. Some things in this world make you faster, stronger, smarter. Some things in this world make you slower, weaker, um, slower. One of the interesting things, though, is is it it increases singularity of focus. So think of the horse with the blinders on. Um, and there are a lot of athletes who, who love that. Say so it's a good thing. It helps them in their workouts. It helps them stay focused when they run. It helps them stay focused when they lift. You have a lot of people who watch, um, like, like people who are watching a ball come to them, like a receiver or a catcher or a batter or something. They would all say that same thing. Um, the the only downside to an increase in singularity of focus is we don't see the peripheral as well. And, and then as far as the ball coming at us, we, we actually see pretty significant decreases in depth perception. So while it will help an individual focus on what's coming, um, it will actually set them back a little bit in their ability to um, interact with that thing. Interesting. And that's true um, and generally, and also visually with your eyes. Um, because we have that, we say that with drug driving, right? That that um, you lose your peripheral vision and some color, um, and that affects uh, uh, driving um, reaction times. Yeah, the, the other really tricky thing with this one when it comes to driving is the, the depth perception. Um, so, uh, uh, which is different than a lot of other substances, you, you have a pretty measurable decrease in, in a person's depth perception. Um, 
the the scariest thing, at least in my opinion, about this uh, with driving is that with almost every other substance, somebody knows when they're too intoxicated to drive. So take alcohol, for example. Um, the, the vast majority of people, and I'm, I'm summarizing science here, not just saying this thing. Um, the vast majority of people say, I know I shouldn't be driving right now. I'm too intoxicated to drive when it comes to alcohol. Yeah. Um, the opposite is true when it comes to THC. Um, people believe that they're considerably more sober than they actually are when you test their reaction times objectively. Right. And we've actually had uh, drug driving experts uh, here on High Truths, and we hear it's not the mellow people driving slow, it's people going 110 miles an hour, very amped up, not not what people really think of. So um, Colorado, yeah, C Colorado's kind of been one of the ground zero, uh, some other the Western states for cannabis. So you're also now ground zero for treatment of cannabis. And, and you're telling me that you're moving treatment to just, you know, there's many types of use disorder of addiction, alcohol use disorder, opiate use disorder, but you're focusing now really on cannabis use disorder. Is this um, a growing um, problem? Um, and uh, which means... Uh, unfortunately, kind of like the emergency doctor, a good business uh, for the for the marijuana industry means good business for me and probably means uh, better business for you. Yeah, unfortunately, that's very true. Um, I really wish it wasn't the case. So, again, Dr. Bader, um, I, I believe, well, you were a part of this, but the the medical textbook that Dr. Finn in Colorado Springs put together, Cannabis and Medicine, an Evidence-Based Approach, um, considered every subspecialty of medicine and cannabis's interaction with that. Um, Dr. Bader and I wrote the chapter on addiction and recovery, um, which was, to our knowledge, the first time anything like that had been put down on paper what makes sound THC addiction treatment. Um, treating addiction is treating addiction. You know, substance use disorder is substance use disorder. But there are absolutely idiosyncrasies to treating specific um, substances. The opiate addict presents differently than the amphetamine addict. Um, and we found a lot of, of really interesting stuff, and I think are kind of pioneering some of it in the treatment of um, THC. So yeah, at, at the, the program where I work, um, which is called the Foundry out here in Colorado, up in Steamboat Springs, we're getting very good at it, unfortunately. And with any luck, um, we will actually open up a cannabis specific program um, somewhere in the greater Boulder area, which is where I live, uh, in, in the next year or two. When, uh, can you just share with us maybe one or two things that, that makes treatment of cannabis addiction or use disorder different than, than other drugs? Yeah, this is, there's, there's so many, but here's one of the craziest ones is, um, all of the drugs that we track aside from some, um, psychedelics, it is the easiest one to stop. Of all of the drugs that we track, it is the hardest to maintain abstinence from. So that means it's going to be a hell of a lot easier for somebody to quit THC than it is to quit opiates. But it's also going to be much harder for them to maintain their sobriety from THC 
than the person from opiates. And the, the, the basic premise that we're operating under, at least right now, our, our hypothesis is so much of that has to do with societal um, perceptions of. And while everybody really quickly gathers behind the alcoholic who stopped, the opiate addict who stopped, um, you know, we really downplay the significance of and even make a joke uh, about the THC addict who's needed to stop. So we think there's a lot less societal support there. Um, probably one of the other biggest things is adequately treating the post-acute withdrawal syndrome, um, the, the, the actual physical withdrawal that takes place now, which 10 years ago didn't exist. Um, but, but how, now how are you treating, how are you treating that? Are you treating that with medications, the cannabis uh, withdrawal symptoms? Certainly. Yeah. Um, so most of it's going to be short term antipsychotic uh, medications, anti-anxiety medications. Um, what we really need to get somebody doing is we, we, we need to get that THC flushed out of their system so we can get a baseline, a psychiatric baseline, if you will. Um, the individual we can't tell what's really going on inside of their brain until all the chemicals are removed from it. And with the chronic THC consumer today, sometimes that's taken out to four weeks. So we really like, we're really careful with diet, exercise, hydration to try and get, get those fat cells that where the THC lives, um, get, get those cleared out and feeling better. Um, the other thing that we do is we prepare our patients for it. We say that day one is not going to be so bad. And I mean, it's all the science. We know this day three, day two through four is going to suck. It's going to be very hard. And then you're going to get a, a bit of a reprieve usually day four to somewhere around day 10 or 12 or 14. But then you see a significant resurgence day 12, 13, 14. Um, and that resurgence tends to be much worse in women. Um, but we prepare them for it and we give them grounding techniques leading into it so that they don't bail out when it happens. This is awesome. I'm, you just made me a better doctor. I'm going to be using so many of your tips today. Um, my mom has a question. <laughs> I am. That's why I, I love my show. I, um, I'm going to, I'm, I, I, I'm going to try this out with my, I, again, I see marijuana poisoning every single day, every shift. Um, sometimes it's a lot harder, I think, for me to get to people because they're there intoxicated. They don't have their brain. So it's probably harder for them to listen or hear what I have to say. I could just try to some tips to get them in the right direction. Um, so my mom has a question. Uh, I thought that maybe you could answer. She's a, you know, grandmother, a great grandmother. Um, and, uh, she's seen her, her friends, you know, they get together and they'll be given gummies by their, well-meaning grandchildren's like oh you know look, look at what my you know grandchild gave me we, we we could share and my mom listens to my podcast i think she's listened to every episode um and uh, she says well what do i do what do i tell them so what should my mom tell her her colleagues <laughs> well uh, uh several years ago we really wouldn't have been very worried about consumption in somebody who has a fully developed frontal lobe, which um, I'm guessing your mom is over the age of 26, 20, just a little so bit, she yeah. Probably has a fully, probably has a, because you're <laughs> 32, 33 now. Right. So that would, so um, 
so we really wouldn't have been too worried about that because there there were pretty minimal um, downsides to it for for the adult brain, the, the occasional use in the adult brain, very minimal downsides. However, um, we're, we've seen some pretty scary things happen with older patients, and certainly with a patient who would be in that geriatric category, um, because of the spike in um, blood pressure. It is again, we've gone from remember the old glaucoma thing, like use it to lower your interocular pressure. That was like a big thing they said. Um, that's because cannabis is a vasodilator, but these concentrators, as they're 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 functioning as vasoconstrictors, you're seeing um, pretty dramatic spikes in heart rate up to about 50 beats per minute, out to sometimes as long as three hours. And then you're seeing spikes in blood pressure. Um, so obviously, th th these are the strokes that so many people are seeing are associated with this and the younger people. But anytime you have a, a rapid increase in blood pressure or a rapid increase in heart rate um, inside of uh, an, an, an older individual, um, I mean, well, you're the doctor. <laughs> you can tell us what will happen. It's 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 some degree um, taking your very well being into your hands with it if it spikes blood pressure and heart rate like that. I you know I see because I work in mostly a, an adult emergency department. I see a lot more adults uh, who come in with toxicity, and it's because of drug interactions. They're taking a lot of medications, and then they add CBD or THC with it, and there are hundreds of drug interactions, and it affects them. I see the cardiac effects. I, I've I've counted two, at least two documented times where we call a stroke code or we get all the resources, people in the CAT scan get ready to reverse a, a, a clot in the brain from a stroke, and it was just marijuana. <laughs> it was not a stroke. Um, and then, you know, um, seen heart attack, you know, cause that. And this is also well documented by the American Heart Association. So, yes, yeah, good with my with my mom. It's a, you know, I guess say no thank you, and it, it interacts with my medications, um, it, it's not benign. And then I think your point is that this is the high concentrate THC that's a vasoconstrictor, not a vasodilator, is a really good one. So um, you have children. And, and, and we don't yeah. know those med-med interactions. Yeah, you know what I do? Actually, we kind of do the... Yeah, okay, wait, I'm going to go back now to the medication interactions because you mentioned that. But that's what I do with my my patients. Um, like the other guy the other day felt a little dizzy, not weak, maybe vertigo, but not exactly. These like vague kind of symptoms. And I just had him on his own phone go to drugs.com, put in his blood pressure medicine, do the interaction checker with uh, cannabis. And he was reading all his own symptoms. You know, like I was, I helped him diagnose himself. Um, so drugs.com, that's what I use for, for people who are on medications, let them check for themselves, their own medicines with, with cannabis or CBD, and they could read those drug interactions and how it affects for themselves. So I think that that's, uh, that's really helped me conv convince uh, patients, but yeah, so we're talking about advice from older people and now advice to younger people. So you have kids. What's your advice to your own children? How do you, uh, I mean, uh, daddy works in addiction. So how they, it's probably, you know, uh, something that's talked about in that, uh, around the dinner table. Talk to them all the time. 
Don't yeah. let this be a subject that they're only hearing aside from the people who want to profit from them. Talk to them all the time. You have a voice, um, whether or not you um, believe this, all of the research would tell us that, that your kids actually do listen to you. They file it away in there somewhere, start early, talk often, um, incentivize good behavior, don't just consider bad. So the deal that I had with all of my kids was um, anybody or, or if any of you make it through um, high school with no drugs, alcohol or tobacco, you get a trip anywhere in the world you want. And that was something we were able to do um, because we figured it was cheaper than rehab. But, but look at the strength-based side too. Um, consider incentivizing kids for good behavior, not just punishing for bad, but talk about it. Don't be afraid to sit down and have these conversations and um, ask them what's going on too. Yeah. All right. My daughter was in college and she was like, what's a jewel? Everybody has this stuff that was going around to class. She knew it was something not so great, but it, it was just new. We didn't know everybody was... Right. So he's telling me that. Um, so that's that's great. I love the concept of um, rewarding good behavior, not just punishing bad. And uh, let's uh, let's finish off by talking to Robert, who works in prevention. He sees it as an uphill battle. Um, what's your advice uh, for Robert? Oh, it's absolutely an uphill battle, Robert. And that doesn't mean it's not worth fighting. Um in, in fact, uh, it's been a long road, man. I've been um, I, I've been having this conversation publicly since 2012, and uh, yeah, you take a lot of arrows, and that's okay, because uh, I, I think personally, at least, I'll, I'll tell you, I believe that um, the hardest stuff is usually the best stuff, and um, it's worth fighting for. The the young people are worth fighting for. The the um, people who are struggling with addiction like myself and the people I work with are worth fighting for. And um, while we might, might not be able to fix the entire thing, I've got some friends who try, uh, our, our mutual friend, Kevin Sabat, and some other folks who are trying to fix the whole thing. For me, um, and if this helps you at all, Robert, um, I, I just remember that old starfish um, and stop it. I think that the story of the guy walking along the shore um, and he sees a, a, a fella standing there throwing a starfish back in the ocean and then another, and there's hundreds of thousands of them that have washed up on the beach. And he says, what, what, what are you doing? You're not going to be able to save all of them. And the guy says, no, I, I can't save all of them. And he steps and picks one up and he says, but I can save this one. And he tosses it back. So um, even if we can't fix the whole thing, Robert, um, I'm, I'm tossing as many fish back, starfish back in as I can. And I'm glad to have some people helping me, like you, Dr. Lev, and, and you, Robert, on the other side of it. That's amazing. Um, Robert Hall, thank you for your question and your very, very important work in prevention. An ounce of prevention is definitely worth a pound of cure. A dollar investment in prevention yields $18 in return. And Ben, thank you so much. You just, you all, every time I, I talk to you, I'm enlightened. Um, you, you teach me. Um, um, thank you for joining me and being on the right side of history and fighting for people and one starfish at a time. You're an inspiration. Thank you, Ben. You too, Dr. Love. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to NMI, the National Marijuana Initiative, striving to dispel misconceptions about marijuana so citizens and policymakers can make well-informed choices. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. <laughs>